0: Welcome to the Business of Security podcast brought to you by TrustMap for Security Performance Management. Your hosts are Josh Bruning and Chad Beckman. Today, they talk with Dr. Nikki Robinson, security architect at IBM and adjunct professor at Capital Technology University. Now, let's get to it. the industry need to start talking about that we're not doing today.
1: Information technology is built on a horrible foundation. If we could sort of redo and start from the beginning, we would be so much better off. If
2: you don't invest in it and keep it running, it will blow up. But you also have to be able to go with solutions, not just problems. We have a long way to go if we're going to win this fight. At the
3: end of the day, educated people are really the best countermeasure against all the threats, the threats,
2: the threats, the threats. The threats. Welcome to the Business of Security podcast. I am your host, Josh Bruning. And I'm here with Chad Beckman, who's co-hosting with me today. And our guest is Dr. Nikki Robinson, who is a security architect at IBM and adjunct professor at Capital Technology University. Welcome, Dr. Nikki. How are you?
1: Oh, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Thank you. Chad, how's it going? Hey,
3: great. I'm excited to have this conversation today. It's great to have Nikki on the podcast.
2: Yes, I'm excited as well. And Nikki, you have written a book. And your book is called Mind the Tech Gap. And it's about the gap between the security team and the IT team and how they work, and how sometimes they do not work. Would you like to expand a little bit? Tell us a little bit about your book and your work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So I'll talk a little bit about my background, which I think lends itself to why I really wanted to write the book. So I started my career in IT on help desk, I think as probably a lot of people do, but sort of starting on help desk and then working up to being a team lead and working with security teams. And from the IT side, you know, when I started working on audits and becoming a system owner and managing my own systems and managing risk, you know, from the IT side, it became a lot more interactions with security teams and working on audits and assessments. And through that, I, I got a real interest in, in getting into security. And then now seeing it from the security side and working with IT teams, I've seen how you know, when teams work really well together, how quickly items are remediated, how quickly things are fixed. And when the teams don't, if there's tension or conflict, how that can actually impact the risk of the environment, potentially negatively. So I, I really wanted to write this book to sort of lay out how, you know, kind of current teams, IT teams, security teams, and management sort of work together and, and, and how we can hopefully find some of those problems, whether it's in organizations or within teams, and, and then hopefully provide some steps to, to to, to solve those problems.
2: Amazing. That is such a relevant topic today in cybersecurity. We focus a lot on the tech stuff, on the tech stack and tools and implementation, budget, you know, some of the business things, but rarely do we find an emphasis on how teams work together. And that's a topic that I've always been interested in, and I think a lot of people in in cyber have been interested in, especially those who have a humanities background. So I studied English for my undergrad. And so I'm really I'm really interested in how people work, how they work together when things don't work when when things do work. And in your research and, and in your time thinking about this topic of the human factor in cybersecurity, what are some of the overarching challenges, some of the trends that pop up? over and over in your studies and in your research.
1: Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get, so I got, I got a DSC in cybersecurity and then complemented that with the PhD in human factors, because one of the things I've seen, so I spent, and I'm still very much on the technical side of of security, but what I started seeing was how relationships, how important relationship building and, and working with other teams, how that can positively impact my work and the security of my environment. And I think one of the biggest challenges or one of the biggest trends that I sort of see in this area is the sort of the competing goals that we have between teams. You know, IT, we're really focused on operations, SLAs, customer uh, visibility and impact. And, and those are really important things. And, and that impacts the business too, positively and negatively. If systems are down, the company could potentially lose money. You know, mm-hmm. and from the security side, we're really focused on how do I secure the environment Try to enable the business, but protect the business from malicious actors, from data breaches that could potentially affect the reputation. So, even though those may seem somewhat different, the goal is really the same is to protect the business. And so, I think as far as like trends go and sort of seeing that as one of the biggest challenges, the other I think is that we've made some cybersecurity, some areas in cybersecurity really complicated and complex along. You know, with sort of building secure environments and infrastructure, working with developers, vulnerability management is complex and complicated. And I think it's one of those other sort of big impediments for a lot of organizations. It's hard to get a handle when you have a lot of tech debt or when you have a lot of systems or a lot of EOL end of life systems that you're trying to manage. And so I think from that aspect, like that's, that's really where I see a lot of the disconnect happening is you know, systems administrators and engineers, they're sort of underwater with vulnerabilities. They don't know how to get a handle on it because, you know, they they've got a lot of other priorities. And so how can security sort of enable enable their counterparts in in development?
3: Let's let's talk about that for a minute, Nikki. It's a really interesting point you bring up. How does security team actually help enable their counterparts in development or even on the network side? What is that? What does that look like from your experience? How do bridges get built and you know, teams get motivated to help support the security outcomes, the security goals when it may not be core to their job? That's kind of an interesting dilemma that I think every security team out there faces.
1: Yeah, I, well, I totally, yeah, totally agree. It's it's one of I think the biggest challenges we have. I think from, especially from the security side and security practitioner side, what I really like to do to enable, whether it's developers or infrastructure engineers or system owners, whoever it might be, is to provide really tangible solutions. I think there's been sort of this history of, you know, sending a 300 page vulnerability report and saying, you know, just go ahead and fix all these things. And oh, by the way, you've got 30 days, you know, it's just not realistic. So I think Uh, helping teams prioritize instead of saying, you know, you have to do this or you have to do that, but saying, Hey, I think we should focus on this first. Is this doable? Yes. Okay, great. Let's focus here. So relationship building can take some time. I think, especially when there has been that disconnect for a while between teams or, you know, sort of, you know, uh, disagreements between teams or teams that have worked together for a long time. And, you know, maybe there's been built up frustration there. And so I think sometimes it's, it, it can be difficult to start to break those barriers down. But I know from the security side, one of the biggest ways that I've been able to build relationships and, and sort of mend fences, so to speak, is to provide solutions instead of saying, hey, here's the vulnerability, go fix it. Trying to provide scripts, trying to provide some sort of automation, trying to reduce the visibility of what they're seeing with vulnerabilities. Because looking at 10,000 or 20,000 vulnerabilities a day can be really defeating, you know, just from a a psychological standpoint, you know, you're constantly looking at this report and saying, oh my gosh, it's all red. I've still have 20,000 vulnerabilities. And now I have 20,500 because of this new report that came out today. So I think helping to make that window a little smaller into visibility and being able to show change and positive change. I think that really helps change the mindset.
3: Yeah. Setting goals and And I think that goes back to what you said in the beginning of your comment about prioritization. So, you know, an organization will always have vulnerabilities. The question is, how long can they live with those and which ones are the most important to correct, right? And I like your idea a lot about providing the tools and making the job of those that are not in the security team, but influence the security posture, making their job easier by providing tools to help them get the job done more efficiently, faster, easier, that allows sort of the upkeep of, of your example of the vulnerabilities that you know these teams might be having to deal with to ultimately help reduce the overall risk.
1: Yeah, I think there's, there's such a, there, there can be such a positive impact when you, when you can show change in the right direction, right? You can show, hey, I've got a solution for you. I've got the script. It will automatically fix this. Or, hey, I've built a secure baseline for you for you know, a Windows Server 2019 or 2022. I've built this secure baseline for you. It might need some tweaking for your environment. You know, We might have to make a couple of changes, but I can work with you on that. But now every time you spin up a new VM or if you're building a new instance, you have a secure baseline to work from instead of me saying, hey, apply these 15 controls to your baseline. You know, it's a very different conversation when you offer that solution um, instead of saying, hey, can you do these 16 things? You know, because it's uh, from both sides, there's a lot of other things that are going on. A lot of people are managing multiple systems and you know, multiple versions of operating systems that all have their own vulnerabilities with applications. And so our our environments are inherently complex now. And so I think anything that I can do from the security side to sort of lessen that burden, I think really positively impacts those relationships.
3: Can you give us maybe some examples of how to create or, you know, if it's common to create shared goals between the security team and let's say the IT team, how, how does one go about even identifying those shared goals to say, hey, we're here to really align with this objective and both, both teams or multiple teams are sort of sharing in that objective? Is that a common occurrence or is it typically everybody has their own silo they, they are focused on from your experience and then it's up to security to try to weave those together and motivate the right activity while others might be... You know motivated by other objectives or or milestones
1: yeah it, it I love that question because i would not i wouldn't say that it's common, but I also wouldn't say that I've never seen it right i've I've definitely seen working in teams in and, and in different places and and just hearing stories from other people too i I wouldn't say it's as common, but I do consistently see the benefits when I see like the CIO org and the CISO org working together and not just working together on one project, but building solutions. Or, or if if you have an IT team that goes to the security team and says, hey, we're building this new environment at AWS or Azure or, or where, wherever it may be. We're building this new environment. These are our goals. This is what we want to do. Is there anything we need to know right now? or do we need to architect something into our solution or are we doing what we need to be doing so sometimes it's as simple as just starting a conversation and it goes both ways right i think it's from the security side if there's you know sort of getting wind of new projects or hearing about new projects just reaching out and saying hey do you all need help with this i heard that we might be you know purchasing a new product or standing up a new environment we'd like to you know help if that's possible could we join in on a meeting so i would say there's definitely a uh, great, when great teamwork can come together specifically in the design phase is probably the best, but, but, you know, it's not always possible. And so I think if teams can get integrated from the beginning, I mean, we talk a lot about in the industry about shift left and moving security left, but I think it's really about being part of the design process, being part of the architecture process can really help one, build those relationships from the get-go, but then it doesn't become this exercise of, you know, not just adding security at the end, but potentially having to add a lot of changes or configurations after the project has not already been set, but been built. So I think it really has to change those conversations from, oh, we probably should go talk to security now to thinking about, oh, hey, I know so-and-so in security. I should ask them to come to this product design meeting and get their input before we get started.
3: Yeah, you know, a term that I haven't heard in a while, and tell me if you've heard this recently, but people used to talk about all the time, you know, 10 years ago, secure software development lifecycle, adding the small S in front of the SDLC. And I think the term may have changed to call it secure DevOps, shift left, you know, I think those terms, is that true? Those terms just got, just replaced, those new terms replaced the old Secure SDLC. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think. Well, I think in some ways, and I think you know there was this big movement for DevOps, and yeah. then it became DevSecOps. And I remember I was I was actually talking to a colleague, and I said, "Well, what about SecDevOps?" And they were like, "Oh, no, 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 don't too much change. Can't do that." <laughs> but but yeah, I think that that term has sort of changed over time, and I think part of the problem is you know there's a lot of people that want to move to Agile and using Agile. And yeah. DevSecOps becomes part of that conversation, but Agile has its own problems. And so I think it, the word has definitely changed, but I think the, the core idea is the same, which is, hey, maybe ask someone in security engineering to be part of this, you know, this, yeah. this design meeting. And speaking about human factors too, when we're talking about human factors, it really is from a, you know, a UX and design perspective. Why not have a security human factors engineer or security designer come into those meetings and say, hey, yeah, if we architect the solution in this way, or if we think about you know, how the user or customer is going to use this product, we can integrate security nudges, alerts, things like that into the product, thereby making it easier to use and easier to secure.
3: Yeah. I like that a lot. You know, when we think about this whole notion of aligning security and IT and really driving change for the best of the business, you know, I've seen others talk about this and I think at times we tend to forget that security is here to enable the business. We're not here to impede it. While at the same time, we also want to be able to enable other people to do their jobs safely, securely, and hopefully with a little more ease. And I think that goes to all these terms we're talking about and really this this notion of integrating security as part of just the normal life cycle of doing business from a IT software development perspective, network management standpoint to, you know, the business expanding into new markets or launching a new product. It's kind of really I think what the theme here is intertwining, you know, security into all of those different aspects and you said it, uh, you know, at the beginning of the podcast too, it's about building those relationships from the onset to make that possible. And it always comes down to, you know, the human, the human element as it were. So.
1: Yeah. I, on that point, it's funny because I hear, you know, we talk about process people, technology, and we've got the processes. We've got a million processes. We've got frameworks. We've got you know governance and compliance we've got all of those things we've got tools we we have great tools to help us do the jobs that we do but i think sometimes we forget that there is a person behind that tool managing that tool configuring that tool and then and then the users on the other side of it that are at, that are using that tool or or maybe consuming it so so i think yeah the human fact, thinking about the human factor not just as our users but as our security practitioners and it practitioners that are using and consuming the technology to to try to make great solutions
2: Nikki, I have a question. I'm ready. All right. Is there a role, whether one that exists or doesn't exist, whether on the IT side or on the security side, that should be responsible, solely responsible for bridging the gap and facilitating those conversations between the security team and the IT team? So someone who is the designated glue, the designated duct tape that is responsible for making those conversations happen and for seeing that collaboration to fruition.
1: Yes, absolutely. And there are, I have seen in in some places and I I don't know about necessarily in job descriptions, I've seen it in some, but there's a great term for this, like a security liaison or an IT security liaison. Someone who works between both teams, someone who understands both goals, both objectives, and can bridge that I, I've certainly been I, I, in that role, not necessarily as my job title, but I think with those responsibilities, really even when I was in IT, on the infrastructure side of the house, bridging those gaps between security and trying to really push, move the needle forward as far as successful IT projects, and then reduction of risk to the business. So it really is about understanding both sides of it and I think it has to be somewhat of a, you know, a pretty diplomatic person, someone who can can really really listen and understand each side and try to bring solutions. I I don't know how common of a job this is, but I think there's there's certainly a need for for this area, and I definitely touch on it on the book because I think that this area, this specialty, could be really positively impacting for for the industry at large.
2: What do you think about the BISO role?
1: So I think BSOs are, are are great. I I like this idea of you know especially at like a large organization or you know an organization that may have lots of sort of siloed businesses or applications or customer you know sort of environments within it to. To have someone who's, you know, responsible for a specific area and can still report to and speak to the CISO, whoever the CISO may be, but have this like collaborative sort of group of security people that work throughout the business because they can really Understand that area of the business, and then provide feedback. And I think it becomes this positive feedback loop between BSOs and CISOs and then the rest of the security personnel in the organization. So I think as long as those relationships work really well, and I've seen them work really well, then yeah, I, I like the idea of, of BSOs as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I was thinking since that you know that liaison doesn't exist necessarily or isn't formalized in a lot of organizations, you know who next has you know some experience talking to the security team talking to non security people or at least is bridging gaps and the closest i could i could come to you is is the bso role that person is inherently diplomatic when i was in when i was an intern years ago that was my role I was, you know, the security guys didn't want to talk to the, the IT guys and the IT guys didn't want to talk to the security guys. And they're like, Josh, you can, you can write emails. Like you like to talk to people. So why don't you get those, those people together and try to make things happen? And so, you know, it, it's not a formal role, but I think that a lot of organizations tend to le- leverage the individuals who are naturally diplomatic those people who like to talk to each other right uh, because the thing is with security you know in in tech the security the security folks and the it folks are inherently at least mostly especially on the it side are mostly introverted they like to do their thing and don't like to be bothered so asking someone to connect with another team you know, it's it's almost like you need a, a an, an API, a human API.
1: Right, I that, like that.
2: <laughs> yeah, that is that that just has that skill set, and that's very rare, you know. But yeah, I, I just wonder if organizations should start looking out for that, or at least begin thinking about creating those roles.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's there's such a, there really is a need for it. I mean, and we talk about, I think your story is is very probably prevalent in the industry, which as far as, you know, how IT and security teams get along or don't get along. And it could be for a multitude of reasons. Right. But I think the, the biggest thing is if you can identify someone who's maybe interested in both areas or is technical, but also loves to write, you know, cause there's always this running joke in it that it's like, okay, I love to do the technical stuff, but I don't like documentation. And so I think it's that same thing, right? If you can find someone who likes the technical aspects, but also likes, you know, networking, going to conferences, meeting new people. And I think this is where Of personality traits come in. I've been doing a lot of research around personality traits and and how that affects, you know, susceptibility to different types of social engineering attacks, which is a whole other area of security. But it's this interesting thing where if you have someone who's more extroverted and likes meeting new people, likes getting, you know, to sort of work on new projects, things like that, then you you could have a really great person who would still technical and understand who they're talking to on the IT side or the security side. But I think in IT or in technical groups, sometimes it's almost like, oh, this person likes to, you know, talk to people or they like to do this or that. They're not technical. And I think that point of view can be really limiting to how we add people into our technical environments. You know, instead of saying, well, you know, they have to have these five languages that they know or they have to have this many years of experience, if they have a, a pretty decent understanding of the foundational, fundamental elements of. Technology and what the tech stack looks like. And they're also, you know, really pleasant and nice to work with. It doesn't mean that they're not technical. It just means that they also have, you know, some other soft skills to bring to the table. So I think really, you know, changing the way that we hire people, thinking about how, how they talk to people is not necessarily a negative thing can be really positive.
2: So are you a fan of putting non security things on a security resume?
1: Yeah. So I, well, it's funny because I feel like I only started doing that when I was got into security because the security, you know, world I think is pretty interesting. I've had a great experience so far. Everybody I've met in the security community for the most part is super helpful. They want to talk to each other. Everybody that's in this world loves security. They love doing this. And so I think soft skills are depending on the environment, but I think soft skills speaking about those, you know, saying, Hey, I was able to be a security liaison for these orgs and for these projects between these teams. I helped reduce risk by working with these teams, et cetera. Yeah. I think those things are absolutely applicable because we need more people who can talk to each other. I think part of the problem in the past is we haven't been looking at those soft skills and more about the, you know, the technical skills, what, what, you know, what, what networking experience do you have? You know, what, you know, network engineering, et cetera, instead of focusing on how people can collaborate and work together. So I'm hoping that that'll be sort of an industry change, but yeah, I see that more on the security side than I would say that I see on the IT side.
2: And are you a fan of personality tests or is that too invasive?
1: So, okay. So this is, I love this question because this really gets into the ethics of it, right? Like as an organization, should you conduct personality tests? I'm not really sure. Personalities can change I mean, there's a lot of research out there that says your personality could change day to day. You could be more introverted one day and more extroverted another. You want to go to a conference one day and maybe after that conference, you're like, I need a break from people for three days or something like that and feel more introverted for a few days. So I think personality tests can be helpful for the individual to maybe identify, oh, I you know, especially like the bigger ones, like the Myers-Briggs and a couple of the other big ones, I think they can be helpful, but I, I think it's not just a, an indicator necessarily, or a, you know, a 100% indicator of who someone is, but I think it can be for more for self-awareness and understanding where, you know, sort of where your strengths are and, and what type of personality maybe you suit more, more to, but more so for the individual.
3: Yeah, we, you know, just to share a, an example of that and kind of tie it back to what we were talking about earlier with, you know, building relationships, building bridges with other teams. Our team did that as well a while back, you know, a few years ago. We went through the strengths finders. You know, that's the Clifton strengths. We used to be called strength finders. And it actually proved to be very helpful in how to engage those other people. You know, a couple of team members actually printed out their five strengths and put it on a piece of paper, hung it on their office door, their cubicle. And it helps to understand, you know, how that person best works and resonates with information and how to best communicate. And there's another, what do you call it, corporate psychologist that we engaged with at one point even further back that had this notion of what your allergies were. (laughs) That's how she coined it. And it comes from another famous psychologist, actually, that uh, talks about, you know, basically how not to approach people given their certain personality types. And that was a really fascinating study and and educational exercise. And it helps, I think, with, with teams to better understand how to properly work together and get the most value out of each other and communicate effectively. So the message sent is the message intended. And I think that helps to go back and build those bridges that we talked about to really, you know, get everybody marching on the, to the same, to the same drumbeat and understand what each individual's goals are at the same time.
1: I love that you, I, I love that you did that because, so I do, I've done a presentation in the past on perception and cognition and how perception can affect sort of how teams work together. And one of the suggestions I make is to actually, you know, have a cognitive psychologist come in and do sort of, you know, a, a seminar or a work group with, with the company or with the IT and security teams and just talk to them and, and, and help them understand, you know, sort of where maybe where their challenges might be or giving them a different perspective. So I love that you did that. Cause that's like a real use case for, uh, for the benefits of having a psychologist come in and, and talk to the team.
3: Yeah, it creates a lot of awareness that isn't otherwise known. And and there's so many different versions of this that companies use. And our, our executive team went through this process a year ago as well. And we did a different approach, a different program, but ultimately arrived at the same results where we got a better understanding of, how to best communicate based on the personality style, and everybody gets kind of typed, right? What, where you fit in the sort of personality circle. And then we understood better what is the best messaging for that person in terms of how they want the information delivered? They need who needs you know to understand the long term and, and underlying context and, and who doesn't, in fact. And so yeah, that just is a very powerful way of creating a much more productive and synergistic teams. So I'm, I'm a believer in it.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure how how uh, how easy it is to keep everyone, you know, unless you have kind of a a whiteboard where you've got everybody charted and you know all their strengths and you're thinking, okay, I need somebody to go talk to this person over in IT or that person over in the business units. You know, I'm just picturing a manager having this giant whiteboard of. Okay, out of let's say today I've got 12 people on my team and this person's Clifton strength is is talking so you you know you draw the short straw and you get to to talk to all the business units or you go talk to the CEO. It is a challenge to keep all of those personalities in order. I'm a huge fan of of personality tests but it seems like a little bit of a challenge to you know really know who's who and so you kind of default to creating profiles and then, you know, maybe that's a danger there that people will get stuck in that profile. So to your point, Nikki, where you said, you know, sometimes personalities change and since you can't keep, keep all those personalities in, in, in order and you have to create a profile, maybe, you know, that could be destructive or at least, you know, if not revisited frequently, you know, that person can be stuck in that one role and maybe there's, you know, they, they're having to be the lays on when, you know, from year to year, maybe they would transition out of, out of that role. What do you think about that, Chad?
3: You know, I, I like where you're going with it. And I think there's something, an, an HR friend of mine told me this quite a long time ago and I might get this stat incorrectly. So, you know, do your own research on this fire, beware on the number I'm going to share. But it's something in a ballpark of like uh, each individual human only has the capacity to, let's say, personally, like, like directly and, and very emotionally, personally relate to, I think, upwards of 20 people in their life, in their circle. And those circles, people in those in that, that close circle of, let's say, up to 20 change over time, as you change jobs, as your family dynamics change, all, all sorts of change always happens in everyone's life. But it's something of the capacity of 20 people. And that's where you, you know, feel true emotion for, you know, an adverse event that happens to somebody in that, you know, circle. So there's a limited quantity of individuals that each human has a capacity to truly fully understand and care for and care to. And I think that's, Pretty, you know, accurate based on my own life experiences. (laughs) But at the same token, I think we also have to be very cognizant of, you know, what are we how do we best communicate with those we're not talking to regularly or don't understand? Maybe we're just we work with them a few times a year or once a month. And I think that honestly, the best and most transparent way. To say, hey, I know we have to work on this project together. Let's just s- establish a goal. So, what Nikki was saying earlier about kind of project management and setting out, you know, the key themes, is just having those candid conversations with individuals that you have to build bridges with and uh, achieve common, you know, achieve a common denominator. Which is asking them directly, how best do you work? How best can I communicate with you? What's your preferred communication mechanism? Is it text message? Is it email? Is it phone call? You know, yep. what is it Slack? You know, whatever it might be, and get all that sort of logistical things out of the way and then they won't be annoyed when they you start texting them and they hate that you're texting them right people don't always tell you what they don't like so it's it's more open and particularly in the upfront relationship if you can just simply Ask the question, how do you best prefer to communicate? And, you know, do you agree that this is the, that this is the proper outcome? This is what the success looks like, if you will, and help define that together as a team, whether it's two people or whether it's 10 people, you know, what does success look like for everybody? Does everybody agree on the metrics that we have and what the vision is at the end of this project? And whether that's remediating vulnerabilities, whether it's developing a new piece of software, whether it's changing complete business process, I think you know, that, that approach works in all of those circumstances.
2: So Nikki, that, that example that Chad provided there, you know, we're tangible examples of where we can improve collaboration. So for example, asking people, how do they want to be communicated with, what, what forms of communication work for them. Are there any other tools that you've seen in your research and in your experience that would help foster collaboration? Because it, it seems like something that needs to be built and cultivated and revisited over time. Is there anything or a set of tools that that you've seen over the years?
1: Yeah, I, I would say I've had on a number of projects used Mural, which is basically just an application where it's you you can use lots of different templates for it, but it's basically a big whiteboard and it's a collaborative space that you can bring, you know, however many people you want into it and you could organize it by goals, project timeline, fears, concerns, hopes. You, you can really organize it in whatever way you want and you can bring the team together, you know, whether it's with a brainstorming session or if you are doing design and development and have people come together and build a, a network architecture diagram together and have them collaborate together. That tool has been amazing because especially when you talk about gathering at the beginning of a project, you know, hopes, fears, concerns, questions, thoughts, you know, things like that, that you can just have people come together. And it can be, if you wanted it to be, it can be anonymous. So if you wanted people to post things anonymously and so that they don't feel you know, oh, they know I said this, or they know I said that, or I'm concerned about that. You can just post it in there without their names. And that way, everybody can collaborate together and say, oh, okay, here's a concern. How do we want to address this? How do we want to talk about this? You know, is this a security concern? Is this an I- IT or a project management concern? Is it a budget concern? Something like that. But that way, everybody can come together and share their ideas without feeling, you know, like it, it you know, sitting in a meeting and everyone looks at the security person and says, why did you tell us to do this? Or why do you want us to do that? You can get together in in sort of a, you know, a safer space to collaborate. And I think out of those, using those types of tools, those collaborative type tools, it, it does bring the, the team together a little bit more. And especially if there is a concern that a lot of people shared, you know, let's say- Hey, if we upgrade to this version of this software, or hey, if we remove this dependency, et cetera, I'm concerned because it may impact the product this way. It it may also help identify potential concerns or design issues earlier than if you know people were doing it sort of on their own. So I, I highly recommend something like Mural or other collaborative tools like that. Those have been very, very beneficial.
2: That'd be really beneficial for task ownership as well. So a team you know, has measured their cybersecurity posture. They've built a roadmap. They've done all the analytics. They have approval to get the work done, but nothing is going to get done if nobody owns a task and you can't track that over time. So it would be really good to put people on the right tasks, on the right projects, on the cybersecurity roadmap. You know, when we're talking about remediations and various cybersecurity projects, it seems like, you know, you'd reduce the burden of task management if we know who likes to be on which kind of task. Otherwise, you know, you're not sending that every six months that reminder, hey, you know, you've got a task to complete. Right. Uh, you know, the the Gantt charts looking a little slim. You know, like let's let's get some work done. It seems like it would be in the favor of that team or for that organization to know their know their players to know their team, know the individuals, and assign tasks accordingly.
1: Yeah, you, you could definitely use it in that way too as a project management tool because it could start from a brainstorming or initial collaboration. Let's say on a, you know, hey, we want to move to a hybrid cloud environment. You know, we want to make sure, you know, our three biggest concerns, high availability, our load balancing, and uptime. You know, 99% or 95%, whatever it might be. And then you can start to build your framework from there and say, oh, okay, well, these are our top three concerns from the IT side. What are our top three concerns from the security side? And then we can start building out a solution from there. And you're absolutely right. You can track that week to week and say, oh, okay, this task, this individual said they were going to take and work from there. But I think the way the, the industry is certainly moving is a lot more collaborative type tools like that, that encourage teams to come together and, and share ideas and not feel like, you know, you sort of have to work in a silo.
3: How prevalent do you think is the cybersecurity skill shortage? Is it more of an effect of people hopping around jobs from your view, or is it truly a significant shortfall in current, you know, uh, skilled staff?
1: Oh, I love the, I, I do love this question. I think it's a couple of different things as far as this Skills shortage goes, or the job shortage goes. I think there's a, there's a couple of different areas. One are some of the job descriptions that we have for you know cybersecurity engineers or analysts. You know we're looking to pay someone you know forty grand a year, but they need ten years of experience and a CISSP and you know a master's and all this stuff. So I think there's some of that where some of the job roles I think we need to, which is you know again partially what I talk about in the book, which is this idea of changing the way we look at job roles you know it, we need to look at them a little differently i think part of the other challenges, yes we do have a ton of burnout i mean that just there's a ton of research out there on how much this industry in particular has experienced uh burnout and people moving into other industries that certainly adds to it and i think part of that is there is a lot of when you look at security job descriptions or the role of someone who's in security we do a lot. I mean, we do so much and, and not just that, but we take on a lot of responsibility, you know, securing systems, making sure that they're not just working properly, but they are secure. We're meeting the business goals. We're constantly staying on top of of the threats and risks and however many vulnerabilities are released every day. And what does container security look like today? What does API security look like? I didn't have to worry about that two years ago, but now I need to understand it. So I think our industry is so fast paced that it is certainly increasing that burnout. And there was a, a recent study done. I can't remember who did it, but they were basically saying that in the next three years that there were a num- there's going to be a mass exodus from the security industry because people are burnt out. The business doesn't always enable security. You know, it is sort of a two-way street. If, if the business isn't concerned with security and security people are constantly trying to, you know, help improve the security posture of the network, but they're getting a, t- a ton of pushback or they can't do their jobs. You know, there's only really so much of that, that someone can, can really take before, you know, they get frustrated and they, and they want to try to look and do something else. So I think if we can have this push pull uh, sort of between the business and, and the security groups, then, then that may help help quell some of that. But I don't know that it's necessarily a skills shortage as much as it is. We have, I think we have lots of talented people, but I think the the sometimes it's the job roles sometimes it's just that people are working 24/7 in in security and it, it it can be it can be really challenging
3: you know i would second that how you articulated common theme of there's a skill shortage i think it's it's a much bigger problem, which you just did a great job at kind of describing what the, those issues really are, which is, I think, why it translates into a skills shortage because people are worried well, how do we get the next group of people into the market up and trained and, you know, the next generation, so to speak. But yeah, yeah I, I agree. I mean, I I think though, if we solve those issues, there'd be a lot less concern about, you know, People leaving the industry or changing roles or, you know, having an exodus that you kind of described and setting expectations that can't be met, like some of the hiring expectations.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Wow. We covered a lot of ground today.
1: Yes. Just a couple (laughs) topics.
2: (laughs) Yeah. This was a really good conversation. the, The social aspect and the human aspect of cybersecurity, the human factor, human element is so relevant today. Especially when we see people experiencing burnout, people are switching jobs, they're trying to figure out where they fit. Managers are trying to figure out who to assign tasks to, you know, we covered a lot here today and this is a conversation that's going to keep going because we're never going to not have people. We're always going to have people processes and technology and people are what make it happen. So thank you, Dr. Nikki Robinson, security architect at IBM, adjunct professor at Capital Technology University. Thanks again. Where can our listeners find you?
1: Yeah, so they can find me on LinkedIn. That's definitely where I'm, where I'm the most active. So Dr. Nikki Robinson on LinkedIn. And then the Mind the Tech Gap book will be out in early October. Anywhere you can buy books.
2: Great. I'm going to get my copy and I'd like a signed copy, please. You got it. If we can make that happen. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And to all of our listeners, thank you. And remember, mind the tech gap.
0: Thank you for listening to the Business of Security podcast brought to you by TrustMap. We want to hear from our listeners. If you have a topic you'd like to discuss on the podcast or would like to continue the conversation, please connect with us on Twitter at cybersec.com podcast or email us at at trustsds.com. We want to thank Dr. Nikki Robinson for being our guest. Our hosts were Josh Bruning and Chad Beckman. You can connect with both Josh and Chad on LinkedIn and learn more about TrustMap at TrustMap.com. Our show is produced by Dan Rollins with LiveWire Films. You can find Dan on LinkedIn and learn more about LiveWire at LiveWireFilms.com. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Business of Security podcast. And that's a wrap.